I don't think Hitler was a good guy. I get the uh, the Hugo Boss uniforms, amazing. Uh, but I mean, just because you're in love with the design, you're a designer. Can we just kind of say like you like the, the you like the uniforms? But that's about no, it. No, we we no. I, there, there's a lot of things that I love about Hitler. A lot of things. I like to listen to music on after I have a hit of my thought of my thought of my thought. I like to listen to music on after I have a hit of my thought of my thought of my thought. I like to listen to music on after I have a hit of my bong bong. If I need to write a song, but it didn't take me very long. Well, now's the end. Uh, yeah. Oh, Adam and Eve, Eve. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world's source for antisocial commentary. I'm on your host, E. Simon. Hi, I'm Kate Rambo. Kate Hi. Rambo, have yes. uh, you been watching the World Cup? Uh, no. Why would Why would I know? But I mean, is your is is are your coworkers obsessed with it? Is everyone talking about it? Not this year, no. Uh, my one mad football mate, uh, member of the crew. I mean, there's a few who love football, but he's like particularly football mad. Uh, he supports Scotland, so you can imagine what he's like every World Cup. World Cup doesn't really mean anything. Like it, it does. It just doesn't. It's not the Premier League. I think it's funny how everyone in the U.S. pretends to give a shit about soccer for a few weeks. Right, yeah. But I want to say to these dickheads I work with that are like, oh, no, we're going to be watching the game in the kitchen. It's like, name one fucking player on that team, you prick. They wouldn't, no one knows, no one knows, because no one gives a shit about soccer until the World Cup. The only England player I can name is John Stones, but that's it. I can't name any other fucking player on that team. John Stone, great guy there. I am stunned that England tied with the U.S. in one of the most boring games I've ever half watched. I'm not. I'm not at all shocked. The English team's terrible. It's never coming home again. And personally, I never, ever wanted to come home because the English are wankers. And every time we can lose at something, I'm happy about that. We don't deserve to win ever again. But, I mean, you're just way better. Usually way better than the Americans. So I don't know what's going on here. I almost think it's worse uh, that you guys tied, you know, then lost. I don't know why. Just because it's like, it was just the most boring fucking game. At least if you lost, there'd be at least one fucking goal, you know? Yeah. And at least if we'd <laughs> lost, then it would have been Yorktown all over again. But alas. I think, I, I don't really pay attention, but I did see in the news that uh, the U.S. was beaten this weekend by the uh, inventors of the Dutch oven. So I don't know how, what's going to happen there. Is that the Dutch, or is there somebody else who invented the Dutch oven? No, the Dutch, the Netherlands, they uh, beat the U.S. They, they so. did invent it. I'm yeah. just making sure that they invented <laughs> it, because sometimes, you know, it can be slow off the mark. What I've been paying attention to news is the unsolved murders at uh, the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho. Have you, been, have you read about that? No, the only like, true crime news I kept up with this uh, week is that um, uh, the Japanese cannibal, what's his name? Isasawa Sago, whatever, the weirdo uh, in Japan who um, ate the Parisian girl. He died. And you know the boy in the box? Really old case. Oh, yeah. They've named him. And then there's all the Delphi murders stuff coming out. Uh, um, uh, Defense Diaries has done a good roundup about that. Well, this is current. So there is a quadruple gruesome stabbing 
of four University of Idaho students in the middle of the night. This happened like November 13th. And they Plus have the ghost no leads. Ted Bundy. They have no leads. No one even knows. And he, like the, the police are like, had the FBI. Um, uh, they have like their detectives out there. And they're trying to figure out like who might have, you know, targeted these kids in this random college town. I didn't even know there was a Moscow, Idaho. Um, but they don't I'm know. I'm telling they you don't... it was Ted Bundy. He's well, back the... and he wants revenge. The ghost of Ted Bundy. So the killing spree took place in a home near the campus, Moscow, Idaho, and the authorities have not made an arrest or identified a suspect, despite the help of dozens of FBI agents and officers uh, from the state police. Um, the details that have emerged have only deepened the mystery. I mean, it's strange that they don't even have a single lead. How often does that happen? There's a quadruple homicide in a college town and not a single like lead or a suspect. Or even DNA evidence. Yeah. So w- what happened there, these four students um, who spent a typical Saturday night at a bar, um, they, they went home in the middle of the night stabbed to death a boyfriend and his girlfriend and then two other girls who were just sleeping stabbed to death in their sleep while two other roommates slept through the attack unharmed this is very eerily like ted bundy it's really weird and phone logs indicate that uh one of the victims made several unanswered calls to her ex-boyfriend who she just broke up with a week before it was him well that's the thing no one's been uh, no one's been arrested. They have yet to identify a suspect, but they've ruled out several people. So one was there's a I guess uh, earlier in the night, two of the people, two of the victims went and got food at a food truck outside a bar. I don't know why they. I guess there was a guy that was hanging out with them, and they've ruled him out. Um, the Lyft driver that wait, gave them you, the wait before you go on. You know I'm going to ask. What type of food truck was it? A taco truck. It was a ta- so they had tacos as well. Oh, that's a great last meal. Good for them. Yeah, not bad. Um, the Lyft driver gave him a ride home. He's he's not a suspect. The two surviving uh, housemates were sleeping, so they're not considered to be a suspect. And then the the former boyfriend, the victim, her family vouched for this guy. He he claims he didn't even get the calls because he was sleeping. It was like at two in the morning. And I guess the uh, his ex his ex-girlfriend who died, she would call just random people like in the middle of the night and ask like, what do you think I should get? Pizza or hamburger? When she's high and stoned. It's the know. ex-boyfriend he's got to be. He's like playing the family The family even for now. this guy. And he has an alibi. Like he is, you know, they, he can prove where he's, where he's at. So, and then the other thing is the Funny. victims themselves. But it wasn't a murder-suicide, that's for sure. So, I don't know. I mean, the 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 the, the police, the FBI, the you know, the the college campus police—they're all like befuddled. They have no idea, you know, who could who could have done this. So I'm interested to see what happens. I hope they find out it was Kanye West in his uh, black balaclava, uh, along with his neo-Nazi buddy Nick Fuentes. I hope it's the two of them just went into the house because they don't know if it was one person or if they, or if the guy had an accomplice. Because four people murdered like that. Did Ted Bundy you, take out four people at one time? He took out three girls in one night. I can't and remember before three died. I don't know. I, I think it would be great, though, if it happened to be Kanye. That guy's a fucking lunatic. Did you watch the interview on InfoWars? No. I'm going to send no, it to you. I it's hilarious. Like, uh, I'm not going to watch it. I have zero 
time in my life for Alex Jones. I never want to hear his fucking voice in my ear holes. And secondly to that, I really don't care about Kanye and what he has to say. I've got like, I would rather sit and watch my Japanese channels on YouTube than waste any time on Kanye West. It's hilarious. Um, people, people out there, I totally recommend skipping. It's a long interview. It's like three hours. Um, I skipped through it and just kind of watched different portions of it, but it is hilarious. I mean, he's a, he's a raving lunatic. And even Alex Jones was tongue-tied trying to interview him. Like, he made Alex Jones look sane. It's, it's, it, it is really funny. Like, you don't really see interviews like this. I actually kind of felt some, some uh, sympathy for Alex Jones trying to interview this lunatic. Because I don't even know how really? you bring someone in like that. Really? You felt sympathy for Alex fucking Jones? No, but at a couple times really? I was just, I've Come been on. in that situation when you're trying to interview somebody and it's just like off the rails and you're trying to like backtrack and, and, and steer them in the right direction. He couldn't do that in this interview. It was funny. Good. I mean, it's really funny to watch him, you know, try, trying to scramble and change subjects. But Kanye West denied the Holocaust, claimed it's a Zionist conspiracy and that they lied about oh. the amount of Jews actually murdered. And Alex Jones was like, well... Come on, man. You know, they murdered a few people, a lot of people. You know, I, I can't agree with you on that one. And it's like there were so many points that he was bringing up that he's like, well, OK, you know, uh, Hitler wasn't that great of a guy. And it was just it was just funny trying to see him counter him. But but Kanye's turned into a far right religious nutcase at this point who hates Jews, said he loves Hitler, he even said, I'm a Nazi. I don't. I do. I wonder what the the what the the end game is here. I don't know, but he he would be arrested for saying that. Over here, we have like kind of strict laws about you definitely can't be like an outspoken Nazi. It's against it's against <laughs> the law here, because guess what? We suffered through it. You guys didn't. We you know we're the ones who actually fought the war. Uh, well, we're the ones who had. Well, your whole family fucking died in the Holocaust. We have freedom of speech in this country, and I am a huge proponent <laughs> of that. I don't think anyone should be censored. Unless you're actually inciting violence and breaking the law. Then I can understand. But I do well, think that even Nazis should have a you know, should be able to speak. I don't think they should be suppressed. I re- I mean it's it's speech until it crosses the line. But that fucking moron kept talking about Jewish owned slave ships and the government keeping black people down and black people need to rise up. Meanwhile, praising Hitler who despised black people and even murdered biracial children. Like- Hitler also wanted to put all the Jews <laughs> on a boat and send them to Madagascar. That was his original idea. I'm hoping that Kanye, to the next interview, because he's getting a lot of interviews now because everybody wants the controversy because everyone's going to watch it. I hope, in, in this one, I don't know if you saw a picture, but he's wearing like some kind of weird jacket. Almost looks camouflage, but I think it's like one of his brand of fashion jackets or whatever, one of from his label. But then he's wearing a black balaclava over his face yeah. the whole time. It was amazing. I'm hoping to the next interview, hopefully on Tucker Carlson or Hannity or something, he brings a full on hooded clan member. And just Oh, he dresses as like a fashionable clan member. I really think he's just on gas at the minute and like that's what's wrong and it'll come out in a couple he'll be like, I took a lot of bath salts during twenty twenty two and I can't remember anything I said. I don't you know, I would love to just see Kim Kardashian's face when she reads the headlines. Like what if she's like, I can't believe I fucked this guy. 
Like, well, she's she got thinks. nothing to be proud of. Her great granddad funded the Ku Klux Klan, so she's got a lot to backtrack for already. I mean, to be honest, his neo-Nazi buddy Nick Fuentes isn't that far off from the Klan. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've uh, seen any of his videos, but anyway. Well, I'm very aware of him. You know, if Kanye is murdered and it's unsolved, they're totally going to blame the Jews. Yes, the Jews, who are well known to be a very violent people. <laughs> the Mossad? violence of the Jews. What about Mossad? Israel's, Israel's had some insane assassinations. Yeah, that's inside of a, inside of like comfortable Europe there, the Middle East. Yes, the, the Jews of America. You, you come outside of your delis with your knives, shouting at people. I hope, I hope the Jews do it. I hope they take him out. And I hope it be, I think it would be amazing if it's Woody Allen who takes him out with like a murder suicide situation with a samurai sword. I mean, Woody he's Allen. Very the guy's specific. like, what? He's like, what, 90 now? He's a. a he's also. A kitty diddler. What is it they say? Well, he's not necessarily a kitty diddler. What he did <sighs> is a bit different to kitty diddling, isn't it's it? It's not creepier, but it's still creepy. It's creepy. It's creepy what he yeah. did. Totally. But I mean, what does he got to lose? Just take out Kanye. But but the thing is, if it's an unsolved murder, I definitely think they're going to blame the Jews. They, they, they'd have to. Um, but anyway, speaking of it's unsolved murders. It's easy to blame the Jews. <laughs> of course it is. Um, speaking of unsolved murders, uh, you know, there are quite a few high-profile unsolved rocker and rapper deaths. And just musician deaths there in are. general. I was, uh, uh-huh. you know, to, to research for this week's show, I was looking, I was just kind of searching just rock and roll deaths, but there's just a lot of musician deaths that are just unsolved. I mean, I would say, what, 60% probably are drug overdoses, but, you know, there's, there are a lot of unsolved rock and rapper deaths. I mean, look at Biggie Smalls and Tupac murders, still unsolved to this day, which is Well, weird. there's many theories, but come on, we all know who did that, don't we? Shug. Uh, Bobby Fuller, you know, I again, not, uh, might not necessarily be a murder, but could be. I mean, he was found dead in the driver's seat of his car, doused with gasoline, bruising on his chest and shoulders with a broken right index finger. How else, how could that be suicide? There's a lot. Yeah. You can have to read Miriam's book. Maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's suspicion in all these cases. Gary Driscoll, I don't, you know that guy? He was the drummer in the band Elf and Rainbow. He was in yes, Rainbow with uh, yeah. Dio. Uh, he was found murdered in his home, 1987, never solved, uh, though many speculate that the incident was a result of like a drug deal gone awry or even a ritualistic satanic sacrifice. Because, uh, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, there's an unproven rumor that he was partially flayed. That's a little weird. But satanic panic at the time. Um, people uh, speculate that Brian Jones was murdered. Oh, I hate this one, right? Firstly, if we're talking about Nazis, in strolls Brian Jones. Secondly, if we're talking about awful people, in strolls Brian Jones. I have, like, as much as I love the Rolling Stones in the early 60s, Rolling Stones in particular, I have no sympathy for that fucking junkie. And he needed to leave that band. Well, yeah, Rolling he was Stones only... became great after he left. Yeah, exactly. I think what Let It Bleed came out right after he left or died. Or no, so, he actually died. I'm after glad that him, he but... fucking OD'd in that fucking freezing cold pool pool because that's the right ending for that cunt. 
And he deserved it. So in 1969, Jones was found dead floating in his pool. And his death was ruled death by misadventure. I can <laughs> see that, though. Well, I think that's the official way of saying it. the guy took a shitload of drugs and drowned in his pool. Yeah, in his freezing cold pool. And he but, deserved it. He was not a nice person. But they say that the contractor, contractor that he had hired, a guy named Frank Thoroughgood, has been suspected of being involved in uh, his death. Yeah, I guess he hired him to do work on his remote farm. And they had a bitter falling out over money. And Thoroughgood claimed that he, that he was owed money, a substantial amount of money, actually, from uh, Brian Jones. And they had an altercation, fell into the pool, and people say Thoroughgood um, left the house shaking and was spotted very strangely within a couple of days after Brian Jones's body was found. So I don't know. It's not proven. Unsolved murder. And then uh, moving on, Elliot Smith. Everyone know we did we discussed Elliot Smith's murder here on the show, but he was uh, stabbed in the was stabbed in the chest. They say it was his girlfriend. Right. Never proven. So I actually am one person removed from Elliot Smith's girlfriend, and she is. I've met her. She is the nicest fucking person in the whole wide world. There is no way she's tiny as well. She's like the size of a, like a bird. There's no way she's stabbing anyone in the chest. But there is, it's like when people say Jennifer Kurt Cobain Chima. was murdered. Kurt yeah. Cobain was a suicidal guy. He'd been trying to kill himself since he was 15. Oh, whoops, it suddenly takes. Same with Elliot Smith. Same with people Elliot loved Smith. it. Conspiracy theories get me so mad. Well, this week's show, we're going to discuss in detail the brutal unsolved murder of OG LA at Los Angeles new wave punk rocker, um, Musician, kind of new wave, new wave punker, a little bit different than like a hardcore punker. But uh, Peter Ivers, uh, who died in 1983 under suspicious circumstances, uh, he was widely known as the host of an underground cable access show called the New Wave Theater. Uh, he also uh, wrote a song that was used in David Lynch's Eraserhead. Um, but before we get to that, let's chat about the Patreon. People, we have this whole magical site. It's it's called Patreon. That's completely separate from this show. And we have like, I don't know, days of content at this point. I bet you we have at least like a month's worth of content. I think Willowberg says there's been a thousand posts on there now. I'm not even sure. I just do it. You know, I just do it just because I have to. It's like indentured servitude. Um, but we, but the thing is, though, we need you to support us on Patreon. That's what keeps this show going. And we're not asking you for like, $30 a month or something. It's like literally $2, $5. So for $2, we just get, you get our like undying gratitude. But for five bucks a month, you know, you get an actual second show. So you get two shows every week. Um, you know, this, uh, this, so second show this week is actually gonna be a long one because uh, we had to skip last week. I was in San Francisco, I was in San Francisco for Thanksgiving. Um, and we have a lot to cover. Namely, my brother's weirdo friend that he brought to Thanksgiving dinner. My sister was just like, who the fuck is that guy? We'll, we'll get to this on the second show. why is he sitting show. on Wackerly's lap? Oh, oh, well, no, Wackerly was also, who had to sit next to him at one point, was just like, who is this weirdo? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was amazing. But this guy is apparently Jeff's roommate. And what he does all day is just sits on Jeff's couch, whacking off in gay Zoom rooms. I, next to your brother while he's sat there. No, my brother will like be on his computer. Anyway, I'm going to play a teaser 
um, from the second show where we're talking about my brother getting frustrated with me and my sister asking him about these gay sex rooms that are perpetually going on. I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, but for five bucks a month, you know, you get access to the second show. You know, we don't have everything. We don't have time on the main show to talk about everything that's going on in our lives. So the second show is a lot more personal and quite a bit more saucy, I would say. Um, and for a few bucks more, you get access to Sick and Wrong Overkill. It's our, our bonus mini show. This week, Kate talks about the life and times of the king of cottaging himself, George Michael. I love George Michael. It was, I got the idea because a couple of weeks back, you were talking about the Wham game, about how if you listen to Last Christmas, it means you've lost. And I was I like, I can it. actually listen to George Michael talk every day. And I did for two weeks. I listened oh. to him talk every day. One of the worst Christmas songs. Have you heard it yet? I don't mind it. And like, I hate Christmas songs, but like oh. last Christmas, it doesn't bother me as much as some other ones do. Like, I don't want to listen to a hymn or like, what's the Dominic the donkey? That's pretty racist. I don't want to listen to that. But I love George Michael and I miss him. I miss him dearly. Do you think Zoom rooms or gay Zoom rooms are kind of like digital cottaging? I think so. But, you know, if it wasn't for George Michael, the rules about cruising might not have been changed because he brought cruising so into like uh, the public zeitgeist. So he, he left his mark, his <laughs> cum stains on the world. That's for sure. At that level too, you also get access to the Sick and Wrong archives. We got the first 10 years, all the wackily years, the Harrison years up on uh, SoundCloud playlists, all available on Patreon. So people, we do appreciate you supporting the show. Oh, if you yeah. like what we've been doing for almost 17 years, Throw us a couple of bucks. Mental. Keep the show going. Patreon.com slash sick and wrong. So here's a quick teaser that we're going to, we hope, will persuade you to sign up for Patreon. And then let's chat about the unsolved murder of Peter Ivers. <laughs> Jeff's like, yeah. He's like, I don't see why you find this so weird. So yeah, there's links out there. You click on it. And then there's just a bunch <laughs> of dudes hanging out. I'm like, they're just hanging out in a Zoom room. Are they in the same room? He's like, some of them are. I'm like, and then what do you, oh. what do you do? You just join the meeting? He's like, yeah. And there's a host. And I was like, and so there is a host like of the meeting. He goes, yeah. And then you just join the meeting. You just go and you just, you know, jack off with other dudes. And I was like, so this guy, Brandon, sits on your couch all day, wanking in Zoom rooms. He's like, yeah. I'm like, for how many hours? He's like, I don't know. Like, five or six i'm like five or six hours i'm first of all i'm never ever sitting on your furniture ever again well now I'm, the furniture has aids so you probably shouldn't you'd probably get pregnant sitting on that furniture i don't think you should and you'd get aids the bad aids too <laughs> patreon.com d we were just saying that usually the first people that people like think of when you mention uh, musicians and moida uh so like the first off the top of my head that i thought about was phil Spector. he oh, yeah. shot one of the lana Claxon on february the 3rd 2003 and then he wore amazing wigs to court we have selena quintanilla i said that right didn't i yeah selena quintanilla quintanilla and she was murdered by her fan club president on March the 30th, some fucking fan club president on March the 31st, 1995. Biggie was gunned down outside the Peterson Automotive Museum. Whenever we drive past it, we're always uh, giving out a shout out to Biggie. Just pouring one out. That's literally down the street from me. Street. Yeah, he died on March the 9th, 1997. His death remains unsolved, as does that of Tupac. Yep. He was killed in Vegas. 
in very similar circumstances the year before on the 13th of September 1996. But then there's a, another musician murder that we covered and that was the murder-suicide of Joe Meek and that was way back in episode 768. A bit more obscure. Yeah, and, and that was a murder-suicide. And we mentioned Bobby Fuller. Um, for those who don't know Bobby Fuller, he was part of the Bobby Fuller Five, but he wrote I Fought the Law and the Law One. And his uh, like life and death is detailed in the book, The Life and Strange Death of Bo Bobby Fuller by Miriam Lena. And she's a zine queen and a scene queen. She was the uh, original drummer oh, yeah. for the Cramps. Oh, and they actually got her in the Cramps because of her zine the bad seed and I've got a couple of copies of that knocking around because of course I do I have a hard but there's another murder musician that never really appears on this list or when he does you think who the hell is that and that man's name is Peter Scott Rose aka Peter Ivers yeah it is weird that uh no one really knows who Peter Ivers is I've actually he's his album Terminal Love that came out in 74 has become kind of a cult classic i've actually been looking for yeah. that on vinyl for quite some time difficult one to find but it's been like what three and a half decades since his you know since he was murdered um and that case has kind of turned into like a bit of a rock and roll black dahlia case here in la but he's right. still like uh the murder and the musician still remains relatively unknown this could be um though because peter liked being obscure he liked being mm. mysterious it's something he wanted from the very beginning and it's something he kind of actively pursued and pushed despite the fact he was best friends with anyone who was anyone in the 1980s los angeles we're going to talk about all these people who he knew in a bit he hobnobbed the celebs oh he was a hobnobber yep and he was a figurehead for the rising new wave movement he once said why glow in the dark when you can dance on Superman's grave? <laughs> and all these other I like that. weird new wave stuff. And his friend and collaborator, David Lynch, said he was in a kind of world of his own. And for David Lynch to be saying that you're in a world of your own. <laughs> I mean, that's saying He's kind of out there. Yeah. So Peter's world started on September the 20th, 1946 in Chicago. So some he's a Virgo, okay? So here are some fun facts about Virgos. They're mutable signs, which is as, as much as a blessing as it is a curse. So mutable signs, right? They wear many hats. They've got many interests. You know, they can flip and flam and change really fast. They're masters of transforming themselves. But unlike the other sistable mutable signs, so there's Gemini, Pisces, and Sagittarius, Virgos are probably the most level-headed and grounded in reality because they're an earth sign. Obviously, this is just general reading for Peter. Like I always say, sun signs don't really mean shit, but he embodies a lot of the Virgo traits, be they good or bad. I don't know if you're aware, but so, astrology doesn't mean shit. I don't know if you're aware, but <laughs> bite me, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> the family didn't live in Chicago for long. Peter's father, Jordan Rose, he was a doctor and he became ill with lung cancer. And it was advised that they moved to Arizona so the scorching heat would be better for his lungs than the cold. You know, that is, that is somewhat true. It's better for the sinuses to live out in the desert, but it is fucking hot. Well, it didn't work for uh, Jordan Rose. He died in 1949. Peter was only three years old. His mother's, she's a homemaker. She's called Merle Rose. I want to start a petition that more girls are called Merle. Yeah, that's Isn't a, it great a great name, name Mel Rose. That, that's like a country singer's name. 
Oh, I love it. And I love her moxie. I think Melrose was a character. So she quickly remarries to a businessman from the Boston area called Paul Eisenstein. For whatever reason, Mel didn't want to be Melrose what? Eisenstein. So she flipped through the phone book and she just picked out the name Ivers. She was like, that will do. We're going to be just, Ivers. Would you just keep Rose? Oh, no, that's her middle name. So she's going to be Melrose Ivers. Oh, she didn't okay. want to be Melrose Eisenstein. I guess if she chose Rose as a surname, then that means Peter would have been Pete Rose and he wouldn't have wanted that. Oh, no, of course he wouldn't. Paul, he just went along with this. He wanted to please his new wife and he changed his last name just for her, which is very romantic. And like, you know, out of sorts at that time. What a cuck. Uh, <laughs> that's what we would say about him nowadays. <laughs> they moved to Brookline, which is just outside of Boston, and they began married life. So Merle was a great inspiration for Peter. She absolutely loved music and she would play all the hits of the day for her young son. And he's going to grow up to be music mad as well. Muddy Waters would one day declare that Peter was the best harp player alive. That that's Muddy to say that. Yeah, that's quite an accomplishment to hear Muddy Waters. To, you know, have yeah. Muddy Waters admire you. Peter's also scholarly, so much so that he attended Harvard, majoring in classic languages. That kind of makes sense to me because, like, in a way, languages are a lot like music, like the when you break it down. So I get it. During a research study at the school, it revealed that he had a near genius IQ, but he preferred to spend his brain power knocking about Boston, playing with a traveling bluesman, you know, playing the harmonica and the harp, hence how he knew Muddy Waters. At first, I thought you were going to say he was playing in the band Boston. And I was like, really? <laughs> Why? <laughs> what was Boston's big hit? Was it more than a Is feeling? It more than a feeling. That's yeah. a great song. Who sang Motoring? Oh, that's Night Ranger. Night Ranger. Yeah, that's a great song too. That's what came to my head straight away. You know that song's about uh, raping nuns. What, Motoring? Oh, yeah. Sister Christian. To... Sister Christian is the name of that. <laughs> Sister Christian, oh, your time has come. Come? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Your yeah you read the lyrics. You... Rape. I think it's like a, a fantasy the lead singer Night Ranger had about raping nuns. Maybe it's me reading into it this. a little bit too much. but During uh, his Harvard years, Peter became actively involved in the theatre. He became friends with John Lithgow, who I've had a kind of girl boner for pretty much my entire life because I've used to watch Third Rock from the Sun and I found him oddly attractive in it. John Lithgow's gay, isn't he? Is he? got a gay vibe. He gives me a bit of the gay bumps. No, yeah. he's a dad. You think he's a dad? We're going to look this I, up later. He looks like a family man to me. but He was also friends with Tommy Lee Jones, who I also have a crush on. Uh, you, I didn't also know that Tommy Lee Jones went to Harvard either. No, I actually, I was, that's why I was surprised. I was like, wow, John Lithgow and Tommy Lee Jones both went to Harvard? Like Harvard's acting school. Like it's weird. It's theater yeah. school. I can see John Lithgow going to Harvard easily. He he seems like, you know, a very learned yeah, man. Yeah. But something a bit like country farm boy about Tommy Lee Jones. So his second year is when Peter Ivers started playing the harmonica. And this set him apart from the crowd because it was the swinging 60s after all. And everyone was playing either the guitar or the piano. After he'd graduated, he met Lucy Fisher and she would be his long-term partner for pretty much the rest of his life. He was a few years older than her. He's famous on campus because he's Peter Ivers. 
he maybe isn't a well-known musician now, but at the time he was a huge talent and he embarked on a solo career in 1969 after signing a record deal with Epic and off the back of his first album, Night of the Blue Communion, which was sung by um, a Sir Lankan jazz diva and legend, uh, Yolanda Bavon. Have you been looking for this album too, dear? You know, I did after I was uh, doing research for the show. I looked into it. Um, one of the singles on it was a cover that actually became kind of a hit for him, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Right. But um, he must have been kind of young at this point. I mean, he probably would have been like 21, 20. Yeah, he just graduated. Bit of a prodigy, this guy. Even under the acid haze, man, Blue Communion stands alone. It still continues to stand alone. And it's now considered a cult and outsider classic. Um, but this isn't what the numbers people at Epic consider a hit or a success. Well, no, it's like uh, avant-garde acid jazz. Like, I, I mean, I got to say, like, Peter Ivers' music in general is a bit of an acquired taste. But, yeah, like, you listen to this. Other than the cover he did that became a single... It's an acquired taste, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just say it nicely. Producer Matt Worth of the record label um, RVNG described Peter's sound as, it just completely scrambled my brain. It was this odd mutant pop led by this wild vocal expression, a minimal drum machine and a Fender Rhodes piano. I was like, I have to learn everything about this music and this musician. It all spiraled into the world of Peter. And when I was researching this, I found that that happens for a lot of people that they'll listen to one Peter Ivers song and then that's it. You're just like trapped in a Peter Ivers zone. I mean, I gotta say it's innovative. I wouldn't say it's as weird as like John Zorn or some of the Mike Patton noise type music, you know, but I mean, yeah. it's it's definitely, it has a beat. For the it's time. Poppy, but it's weird. It, it's out there. And for the time, there definitely wasn't much like this. Yeah, I there was no one like, like Peter. In the late 60s, I mean, there really weren't that many. I mean, there was Sparks that was doing some weird music. Kraftwerk was just kind of starting out. But this predated Devo. It predated most of those new wave bands. Um, you know, I mean, he was definitely, yeah. that's what I'm saying. He was like, he was an innovator when it came to this. Yeah, he's a visionary. Uh, and he's also a producer, too. He's in much the same way that Phil Spector or Mike Chapman were and are. So for his second record, Take It Out On Me, which was released in 1971, he replaced Yolandi with an Indian diva and a techno pop star, Asha, uh, I'm gonna murder her name, I'm so sorry. Asha Put, Putli, shall I say it in my Indian voice? Asha Putli. And they did a cover of the Marvin Gaye song, Ain't That Peculiar. And that's the single that briefly entered yeah. the top 100 charts. So that one, if you do a search for Peter Ivers, that's probably the song that's going to come up. And I would say that's probably one of the more attainable songs. <laughs> like, you know, accessible. Yeah. Like you listen to it, you're like, oh, wow, this is cool. Is it? Most of his music does not sound like that. Yeah, and what also doesn't sound like that that is the B-side to that, which is kind of Captain Beefheart-esque. Yeah. Loosely Captain Beefheart-esque, and that's a song called Clarence O'Day. Epic shelved the album. They were like, nah, we're not releasing this. And it actually would never be released until 2009. Not surprising that, uh, you know, a major record label would, like, not want to spend money on some avant-garde experimental album, you know? Right. So in 1971, he moved to L.A. and he's going to score his friend Tim Hunter's AFI film, Devil's Bargain, which I haven't seen, but I want to see now. 
He moved into the famous Tropicana Hotel, which is a sleazy dive in West Hollywood where Jim Morrison would regularly piss his pants because he was drunk. And Tom Waits would skulk in the back, checking out the bedbug bites on the local floozies. You know, quite a slew of rock stars stayed at that place. Oh, yeah. You know, it's currently, that's also up the street from me on Santa Monica. It's currently a Ramada. I think it's a, like a Wyndham Hotel, uh, but it's still a hotel. You know, when I was, uh, like, I looked into the history of the Tropicana just quickly, and it started out, it's always been a nightclub. But it started out as a nightclub slash Italian place, and they would serve you spaghetti as like bands played. <laughs> it's actually Isn't kind of that a weird. Idea. But you know, the, cool. <laughs> but that's that's a thing. Like in the late sixties, early seventies, like Joan Jett, Janis Joplin, Bob Marley, Alice Cooper, Iggy Pop, The Runaways, Ramones, Blondie. You yeah. know, New York Dolls. Everybody passed through the Tropicana at one time and partied there. But even before that. Um, you know, it was still kind of a hangout for uh, celebrities. Baseball uh, uh, Hall of Famer, LA Dodgers players, uh, Sandy Koufax actually owned it for a period of time. Um, like in 1960, I think in the early 60s. And he was the motel's fourth owner. So when he sold it, that's when it became like the big rocker location. I did see that they would, uh, LA was going to demolish it. Um, but the owner, the current owner was like, they put up a real big fight and had a, a petition, and that's why it's still there. But it was mm. going to be demolished. LA loves destroying things. I know. You'd think a lot of these places like would become historical landmarks. I'm hoping they do that with like the rainbow and the whiskey and places yeah. like that. But, you know, they're already uh, tearing down the Viper Room. Yeah, but the Viper Room is never very good. It's not like the rainbow. I always thought that place sucked. It was cooler yeah. back in the like early aughts. Definitely was cooler then, but... In the in the I'd say the past ten years it sucked. I was gonna say it's cooler when River Phoenix is vomiting outside it and his brother Wackins on the phone to the ambulance crew. That's when it's cooler. Well that would have been the time to hang out at the Viper. Oh man, I, I love River Phoenix. I feel bad for saying that. So Peter became the unofficial slash official musician in residence at the AFI. And from here he kind of ended up knowing everyone. He was a fixture on the scene and he became a bridge between the underground art scene and the commercial mainstream establishment. He's insanely intelligent, he's super affable, and most of all, he's fun. Everyone wanted to party with Peter. Um, real quick, when uh, Kay says AFI, she's not talking about the band. She's talking about the American <laughs> Film Institute. Film Institute, <laughs> yeah. Although I used to, when I was a teenage goth, I liked a little cheeky bit of AFI. <laughs> Davey Havoc. You know, you used to see him in the yeah. East Bay. You used to see him every now and then with this like black parasol, like going walking about town. <laughs> Lucy Fisher said that Peter's curiosity about the human experience was his blessing, but it was also a bit of a challenge. He was interested in interacting with anybody in anything, even if it was to elicit a shock. It was always about having an encounter as opposed to gliding through life unaware, which reminds me of a former host to this show. Wackily? Yes, it sounds exactly <laughs> like Wackily. <laughs> a few months later, Lucy moved to LA to be with Peter and they joined the hippie scene in Laurel Canyon. They scraped together the $250 rent a month, <laughs> which I, to begin, I laughed when I saw that $250, but then I did like, you know, the conversion to see what it was worth. And it's worth about a grand today. So that's kind of all relative. You can probably get 
a flat what? for a grand a month there. No way. You couldn't even you couldn't even get a studio, especially in Laurel Canyon. I now want to find the world's worst studio apartment in Laurel Canyon for a grand month just to prove you wrong. It I won't would, have windows. It'll be a box. I would be amazed. I don't know. I I haven't seen and I've I've been looking to because I'm I'm looking uh, you know when you move here we're always kind of looking for for a, a new apartment something a lot, lot bigger. Laurel Canyon is expensive. The thing about Laurel Canyon is you can't get phone service. I don't know why anyone lives oh, yeah. out there. You'd have to get a you know you'd have to get one of those satellites. You can get those. But I, maybe we can get a maybe we can get a, a see if the Wonderland house is open. I was literally about to say the only place in Laurel Canyon where I would live is the Wonderland House. But I really like the layout. You can see the Scott Michaels video that where he takes you through a walkthrough inside the Wonderland House. And I love it inside. I would live in that cool. murder house. Yeah. Lucy said it was a fairy time, a fairy tale time for the couple, saying music literally bounced across the canyon all the time. And Peter's gonna join in with this. He would crank up his record player or he would sit and play his harmonica out the window. All very lovely, all very hippy-dum. Very hippie. Yeah, dirty hippies. There was an open-door policy to the flat, and one of the most frequent vis visitors was close friend and fellow AFI, not the band, the Film Institute Fellowship member, David Lynch. They became fast friends. They shared a love of jazz, blues. They had a strange belief in signs and symbols and all things weird that we've come to expect and appreciate <laughs> from David Lynch. In 1974, he was in the early production stages of what would be a race ahead. Now, I am assuming, I know it's a dangerous thing to do, but I am assuming that everyone listening has seen a race ahead. Like, it's a, it's one of those, like, first cult films you see when you're, like, 15, 16, isn't it? You usually see it in college. I think most people tend to encounter, you know, I mean, you might have seen, like, a couple David Lynch movies in high school, but Eraserhead is what you usually see by, by the time you're a freshman in college. It was the first one I saw. I saw it was like on film four. Like film four used to be great when I was fifteen, sixteen. I remember I was stoned. It came on, and I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm gonna watch this" because I used to just watch whatever was on the telly because it was those days where you were just like chained to whatever came on. I think and for it me, weird. it was Blue Velvet. That was because I remember that was very popular, and it was like everyone thought it was a horror movie. And so I remember seeing that in the late eighties and being like, "Oh my god, this movie's great." It's very sexy. That's One of his sexier films. One of my favorites in my top uh, five. Oh, like top five favorite films of all yep. time. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's my favorite David Lynch, but I do love it. Oh, it's some of the best uh, lines. Heineken, fuck that shit. Pep's blue <laughs> ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> Loads of great lines. I don't know. I just think Wild at Heart kind of beats it a little bit more. But that's it's a good movie too. Preference. It's a great movie. Um, so if you haven't seen a razor head, you need to go and see it just yeah. to see. It's one of the weirdest, Brilliant. but also really oddly lovely. It's, it's just, there's just something really heartwarming about a razor head. And it kind of sets up David Lynch's career. And For sure. I don't know. It's just a very lovable film. One of the most famous scenes and songs from the film is when the character, the lady in the radiator sings, in heaven, everything yeah. is fine. And who do you think sang that? Who do you think provided the music? That's right, it's our boy Peter Ivers, whose voice is part fusion of like a mother, a child, he's male, he's female. He's Peter <laughs> Ivers. It's weird. Here, here's a song, and it's, it's only like 90 seconds, I mean, but I'm going to yeah. play a clip of it. But you can just kind of hear, 
I guess the unique sound that is Peter Ivor's voice. And this is what I'm saying, that his music isn't very attainable. I don't think it will appeal to most people. Like Kate kind of hates it. <laughs> I mean, would you listen to it? I do, I hate it. No, it's not for me, but I like, I appreciate what he does later on with the New Way Theater. That's my scene. So let me, uh, let me play that. Here's a clip. has like an almost ethereal quality to it it's like it's like you know it's very it's so high pitched i mean i thought if yes. i just first heard when i first heard that i thought it was a woman's voice yeah i thought it was her <laughs> yeah, was same with me. well i she looks like she's lip syncing in the in the scene but i thought like it was definitely a woman who was singing that yeah wrong they were <laughs> they recorded him in the laurel canyon apartment david lynch said Peter laid down on his bed, he put his on his headphones, he picked up his microphone, and in this falsetto voice, he sang exactly what is in the film. Like he said, it's only 98 seconds yeah. long, it has 14 words, and it's part of Hollywood legend. It even reached a group of eager eraser heads in Ohio by the name of Devo, who begged David Lynch the rights to grant them to perform the song. And Peter scrawled down the chords and lyrics on a napkin at the diner where Lynch still drinks nine cups of coffee and a chocolate milkshake every single day. Same fucking diner. I wonder which diner that is. Must be in LA. I always forget. Yeah, it is in LA. You can, uh, you can find it really easily. He does his weather reports from there. Huh, I'm gonna have to find that place. I wonder if I've been there. But you know, the song in heaven uh, would be recorded by many artists, uh, including the Pixies, which a lot of people probably have heard that. Bauhaus, Tuxedo Moon from San Francisco, uh, Miranda's Sex Garden, Modest Mouse, which I didn't realize they actually Ew. recorded this. And Jay Retard even does Modest Yeah, Jay Retard even does a version. Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo said, you could label Peter an early pioneer conceptualist. He liked to, he helped to popularize ironic humor, the previous generations of musicians regarding new technologies and the mixings of mediums as suspect. Peter was definitely part of the new generation. You know, I would almost consider that guy to be like a new wave outsider musician. Because I know that wasn't really, yeah. I mean, there were, there were people who were releasing underground records at that time, but he was definitely at the forefront of that. Yeah, he's like the most famous, not famous of all the new wave musicians, I would say. And he's also insanely busy during the mid 70s. As of this date, there has been more than 500 cassettes of his recordings. More continue to come to light because they're being kept safe by his inner circle or like people in Devo will have them. Unlike a lot of his peers at the time who would succumb to temptations and the damage done, like uh, his friend John Belushi would precede him in death, for example. Peter was working prodigiously until his own bitter end. He had signed a deal with Warner Records in 1974. During one meeting with the big wigs, um, he leaped upon the table. This reminds me of Lydia Lunch, who um, pissed on one of the executives' uh, <laughs> tables. 
But Peter Ive, as he leaped up on the table, he broke into the meanest harmonica solo you've ever heard, man. And he's like waggling his hips suggestively in this like executive space. So it got him the record deal and he might have been good yeah. at getting the record deals, but that didn't mean that he'd always make records or any records that they'd actually like and put out. Peter said, demos are often better than records. There's more energy, more soul and more guts. And if you want evidence of that, you all need to go and listen to the Modern Lovers She's Cracked demo. It's a million times better than the actual single version. Well, That's oftentimes, you know, they master it and re-edit it and things like that to make it more commercially viable. But I don't think right. Peter Ivers gave a shit about that. I think one of the other reasons why he was able to, being such like, you know, an unusual musician that he was, was able to get these record, you know, a record deal from like, or even a meeting with Warner Execs is because... He had some acquaintances and some pretty high-profile celebrities. So uh, he had met another very eccentric auteur who's very well-respected, a guy named uh, Van Dyke Parks, who is best known yeah. as Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, uh, the lyricist for the, uh, the troubled Beach Boys album Smile, which uh, was a pretty amazing record. Um, Parks was really impressed by Ivor's writing, so he brought him to Lenny Waronker and Mo Austin, the two executives at Warner Brothers, and that is what eventually netted him a deal on an advance in excess of a hundred grand. So even before his record came out, he got like a hundred grand advance to make this record. Pretty amazing, you know, kind of incredible for someone who produces such weird music. Yeah, yeah, it's more than incredible. And a hundred grand is a lot of money. Is that like probably about a million today? Uh, I'm not sure, but I mean, it would have been a few hundred thousand. So with that money and the, the record deal, he released Terminal Love. That's the album I've been looking for for quite some time. An original, of course. That came out in 1974, and it kind of introduced the world to Ivers. I mean, the album, you know, is mostly ballads. Uh, the songs have unorthodox structures, shifting tempos, time signatures, and weird, witty lyrics that reference everything from like Freud to Adler to uh, Reich, you know, and uh, and talking about space and time travel and entropy. I mean, it's a very bizarre record, very Peter Ivers, um, and, and you know, obviously the song, the album wasn't a commercial success. In fact, I'd say it was quite a bomb. However, it became a cult classic over the years, and it's difficult to find. But I think the the most idiosyncratic element of it, like the the the, the takeaway when people hear it, um, and what's most unnerving, I would say, is Ivor's voice. I mean, it's even—I right. would say it's higher than Neil Young. You know, it's just like yeah, this he's got reedy, a true falsetto voice. Yeah, this like he sings in this like strange falsetto. Um, I mean, I, I, I can't really think of anyone, maybe television's uh, Tom Verlaine kind of has a voice that high, or people people always compare Peter Ivers to, uh, or say that Peter Ivers inspired um, Gordon Gano from uh, Violent, The Violent Femmes. I don't know. I can, yeah, I see Gordon Gano comparison a lot more than I see the Tom Verlaine. I get that, yeah. But Tom Verlaine also had kind of a weird voice as well for uh, a rock musician at the time. Just a unique voice. But... Sure enough, Terminal Love died on the vine. And it's it's kind of, I could imagine like what the, I would love to see the executives' faces when they heard it. They're like, just that, that expression of what the fuck is this? What the fuck did I just spend a hundred grand on? We'll quietly put this out. <laughs> and his changing styles, his moods, his pamper burns, backup sound. It suited what yeah. was happening in America at the time, right? Because America's shifting into the new wave era. 
He's invited back to Harvard to give a guest lecture on the essence of new wave. And he made a point on the zeitgeist by stripping out of his tweed suit mid-speech. And eventually he's just ending up in a skin-tight silver spandex cat suit. Fabulous. Shortly afterwards, Harvard liked it. He was declared an artist in residence at his alma mater. It's all kind of very Bowie, like American's version of Bowie to me. Well, he, he was known for his outlandish antics but as well as like his extravagant outfits i mean he wore some weird some weird outfits he did it was also around this time that lucy moved out it had nothing to do with the cat suits she was successful in her own right she's a vp of production at 20th century fox and she's kind of funding peter's relatively unsuccessful lifestyle you know there has to be one person captaining this ship i think how much a uh, vp of, uh, you know, at a, at a major studio was making, especially at that time. So that's why I think Peter, you know, had the funds to be able to live in their, their cool Laurel Canyon, uh, you know, house probably at this point. And, uh, you know, and, and hobnob. yeah, and hobnob and produce avant-garde music. I mean, yeah, they had, they had the funds that enabled that lifestyle. Yeah. And, so Lucy's, you know, she's growing up. She's kind of wanting to get married. She's thinking about having kids, all that adult stuff. Peter hadn't, or he wasn't going to be doing any of that stuff anytime fast. And although they're never officially, they never officially broke up, um, they were no longer living in each other's pockets. Well, I think at that time, though, I mean, Ivers did release that, you know, his, his record. He got that 100 grand. I'm sure he blew through it. But you know, he was struggling. He was definitely struggling financially. But meanwhile, you know, his girlfriend, she's a VP of production at 20th Century Fox. And then all of his buddies that he was hang out, hanging out with, you know, like, you know, like uh, David Lynch and Mark Mothersbaugh, those guys were blowing up. But what's happening with Peter Ivers? Yeah. You know, I mean, that must Not have bothered much. him. And that must have had like, you know, an effect on his mental health. That reminds me, that always makes me think of um, like uh, Freddie Mercury and Queen. So the rest of Queen are all very learned people, all have degrees in like weird scientific stuff, kind of like offspring. They're all like yeah. nuclear physicists or whatever. Freddie Mercury never went to college and it used to bother him to the point that he would lie about it and tell everyone that he had degrees and stuff when he never did. It's yeah, a Virgo thing. But they needed him to be a band and he needed them like remember when he split Fuck yeah from, remember when he split from queen <laughs> he said terrible solo album um i actually like a lot of that songs off that solo album where he's uh. wearing his cat waistcoat don't you speak ill of <laughs> well queen also day. didn't queen also release a couple of records without freddie yeah, and then actually george michael's version of somebody to love is better than freddie's I wouldn't say better, but it is really good. Yeah, if anyone could have sung like Freddie, it would have yeah. been George Michael. Well, what about, uh, what's his Peter? name from American Idol? Which, oh, which American Idol guy? Maroon the, the, gay, guy. the gay guy from American Idol, uh, Adam whatever, I forget. He was the one that- <laughs> Which he's one? Been... Oh, Adam Levine. No, not Adam Levine. I forget the guy's name, but he's the one that's touring with Queen as a singer. I wouldn't know. But he was from American Idol. Queen's still touring. They yeah. need to stop. They just need to stop. I know the guy out of Free, you know, did all right now. He was in Queen for a while. He was in Queen? When was that? That was like a, a few years back. And then one of the Journey singers was also the singer for Queen. 
I could I could see that. I um I I could see uh um uh what's his name? Steve uh uh singer Journey. I'm always blanking on his name right now. Um Adam Lambert, that's who I'm talking about. That, he's the current oh, singer. Oh, him. Yeah. Yeah. Who's Adam Levine? Adam Levine is uh, the dude from um God, he's that terrible band, Maroon 5. That's it. That's why I thought Adam Levine. Anyway, they, they all get mixed in the Steve wash. Steve Perry. They? God, I can't believe I just forgot that's it. that. Steve Perry, yeah. He Steve, sang for Queen for a while. Steve Perry singing for Queen, even though it's a different kind of voice. Yeah, I don't know if the pairing would work. I get, His voice is powerful enough to do it. Yeah, he belts it. Peter is one of the few men that I will ever allow to write a manifesto. And in 1978, he was sketching out ideas for what he called the Ivers Plan, which basically reads as the original idea for MTV. He wrote the beat, the outrageous imagery, and the collage sense of reality will become the new visual vocabulary. That's MTV! I mean, predated videos. Yeah, the new wave theater was born because of this. It's kicking, it's screaming, it's covered in glitter. And this is all going to help fuel Peter's exhibitionist side. First aired on cable access, LA cable access in 1980, the new wave theater was the brainchild of Peter and producer David Jove, who might also have been the acid king, the man who may not who may or may not have supplied the drugs for the famous arrest of Keith Richards and Mick Jagger in 1967 and then mysteriously disappeared. In the book, The Acid King, a rock and roll novella, author Maggie Abbott, who knew David Jove and was familiar with his murky past, claims that after being busted for the drug affair, he was forced into acting as a pawn for the FBI CIA to infiltrate the rock establishment to ensure it stayed in its lane and it didn't try to push politics like it had been doing in the UK. I do think we should do a part two of this episode and cover the Acid King next week. He's been, David Jobs has been on my list for a while to as, a, uh, as an intro topic and we just didn't, never got around to it, but... When I was researching Peter Ivers, I was like, oh, my God, this is part one Peter Ivers and part two, his uh, his uh, new wave theater counterpart, David Jove, the Acid King. Let's do it, because I will use any excuse to watch that beautiful footage of young Mick Jagger and young Keith Richards when they're like, we never smoked the marijuana. And they're just so beautiful and young in the footage. I, I love uh, all week watching that. I love uh, young Keith Richards and uh, Mick Jagger watching the film of the aftermath of uh, and Gimme Shelter, the aftermath of uh, aftermath oh, of right, Altamont, yeah. and they're just like, oh, it really is violent. Maybe we shouldn't have hired them. You know, the Hell's Angels. You know, maybe that wasn't a good idea. And it's just like you're like, yeah, no shit. You hire bikers as security. What do you think's gonna happen? One of my favorite parts of the trip is Steve Coogan's impression of Mick Jagger. He just fucking nails it. <laughs> we'll watch it afterwards. Um, fellow musician and friend to the pair was a, a man called Peter Rafelson, and he said that David was a fledgling artist, director, and gang leader of the Freaks and the Misfits. Much like the punks in King's Road, the Freaks would come and hang out in David's small, like, decrepit retail shop. He'd converted it into what everyone called a cave, without light and the walls were covered in trinkets there was knickknacks there's pictures it even had a porcelain zoo there's a porcelain zoo inside of their day see i didn't start the porcelain zoo <laughs> you're inspired 
so this uh, decrepit storefront, it would actually feature throughout David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Like uh, you see it as little cutaways where he'll feature just like stores that are shut down and like a disused Main Street. It's, it's also alongside the idea that this is where the freaks meet. David Jove wanted the New Way Theatre to basically be a showcase for bands and also so that Peter could read his anti-establishment screeds on air. Peter's basically going to be the host, he's wrangling the musicians, he's wearing all this outlandish garb, and he's asking the bands big questions, such as to explain the meaning of life, but his tongue is very firmly in cheek. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, he's, you know, using his own uh, brand of uh, presentation here as the host of a New Way Theatre. So here's a clip uh, from the show, which, you know, you can find, you can do a search on YouTube for New Wave Theatre, and you'll definitely come across uh, some of this. Hi, welcome to the New Wave Theater. It was a custom in ancient Greece to pass a skeleton around the table before every banquet to remind everyone of their mortality. Today, in Regan country, it's only at funerals and times of loss that we allow ourselves to see the transience of life. For no one wants to be reminded of the passage of time, especially when they're having a good one. If we all weren't living under the threat of famine, bomb, fever, it'd make no difference if people ever found out who they were or what they're doing on the planet. But because of this threat, it's become necessary to alert anyone and everyone that could possibly care. Man's supposed to be the most highly evolved creature on the earth because of his ability to adapt to almost any condition. But he must only adapt to what he cannot change. And a new wave theater fact of life says everything has changed. So this means man is free to understand the perfection in every aspect of existence, in every work of art, in every deja vu step on his stairway to the stars. He goes on and on. You know, he kind of looks like Michael <laughs> J. Fox wearing like a gold satin jacket. Like Michael J. Fox, like family ties era. Yeah, I get that. Like, I like how you can hear that a little bit of the Boston. Like, he's yeah. got the elongated vowels. You can hear it. I like it. So, New Wave Theatre, it's just 25 episodes, and a wide range of people appeared on it. So we've got the usual suspects in walks David Lynch. He actually described New Wave Theatre as a madhouse. Again, if David Lynch is saying it's a madhouse, it's a fucking madhouse. We had uh, John Belushi as well. He's on it. Free-for-all sets were played by Bad Religion, Circle Jerks, 45 Grave, which is actually my favourite performance, because at the end, Diana Cancer, the lead singer of 45 Grave, she dies. But this is 100% stolen from, like, Niagara and Debbie Harry, who have died on stage many times. Yeah. But I love it. It's great footage. That's a cool, the Angry it's a, it's Samoans. A cool performance. Uh, Black Flag. They, they were all on the show and they're all mocked, but at the same time revered by Peter. Peter said, I prefer to capture an event rather than manufacture it. My role is to be a provocateur. That's why I wear glitter all the time. I know the punks hate it. <laughs> well, that's the thing, like Black Flag and Angry Samoans were, well, I don't know. I mean, Bad Religion, Circle Jerks, those bands were all pretty much part of that whole LA punk scene. But I would say Black Flag and Angry Samoans are a little bit heavier than the other ones. Oh, yeah. And he's there winding them up. I think yeah. if Peter wasn't so lovely, he would maybe get hit. But because he's such a nice guy and it's just part of his humor, everyone just like, it's kind of like Nardwar. Sometimes he asks really cheeky questions, but because they're said in such a lovely way, you're like, oh, I will answer that. It doesn't matter. And he's so innocuous, too. And he's affable. So right. it's like, yeah, how can you get mad at that guy? 
being a provocateur, it's not a new thing for Peter. He's bold, he's in your face. Uh, one of his most notorious examples of this is when he opened for Fleetwood Mac at the Universal Amphitheatre in 1976. He came out on stage clad only in a diaper <laughs> and the entire crowd booed and jeered, but Peter just carried on singing his set and like he's growing bolder at the crowd's distaste of his antics. It became Hollywood New Wave legend, but at the time, people just thought it was weird and that he's a weirdo in a diaper on the stage. I know uh, Lucy Fisher was there at the time, and she was really embarrassed. Yeah. And the whole time, she's like, they're booing you. Just stop. And he was like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, it just carried on. I think you kind of know if you're going to go out on stage in a diaper. Having been out on stage, if I went out stage in a diaper, <laughs> I would kind of maybe expect it. I don't know. Gigi Allen used to wear a diaper, didn't he? Every now and then. Gigi Allen also used to shit in his hand. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You could take it one step further, it. Peter Ivers. How amazing would that have been? The Fleetwood Mac fans just getting pelted with feces. She's Peter Ivers' feces. He would have put glitter on it before throwing it out. You know, uh, rest in peace, Christine McVie. She died this past week. Yes, she did. But thank, thank you for not taking Stevie Nicks. Thank you. Um, former singer for Felanius Monster, Bob Forrest, was at many of the tapings for the show, and he declared Peter to be the most interesting man in Hollywood and said that the tapings, which were at the Florentine Gardens, which was an iconic nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard, were dangerous and chaotic. You'd walk in and it's a TV studio. There'd be bands playing right on the floor. There's no stage. There'd be all these punk rockers, homeless punk rockers, all these crazy people who were just part of that Hollywood Boulevard scene. By this time, Peter had followed the very hip trend of moving to live in big, uh, like, uh, warehouses that they jokingly called lofts in the Arts District, just off of Gritty Skid Row. He's kind of attempting to grow up a bit. Well, he's a bit of an urban pioneer because that, that area, that was, that was a, I mean, it's still a pretty a rough neighborhood and it's still very sketchy. So I couldn't imagine like in the 80s, like what that area would have looked like downtown LA. I mean, you probably could have gotten one of those massive lofts, but I'm sure they weren't renovated. I'm sure they were very like shoddy and like he probably had to, I mean, he probably wasn't living, you know, in the comforts of a Laurel Canyon apartment. No. And David Lynch said that the warehouse was a hellhole and that nobody should live there. But Peter's right. happy living there. <laughs> Lucy thought his work with the New Wave Theatre was beneath him. She thought that he was just submitting to being the mouthpiece of David Jove. She's becoming so corporate. She's like now, you know, VP of 20th Century Fox. She's corporate. She's moved on from this punk rock, you know, New Wave ethos. I don't know, man. I think she's looking. I think she's looking out for Peter, and she's like, "You're better than this. What's going on? Why are you doing this?" She's she's an adult. That's what she is. Well, Peter had a sort of father figure quality in David. So, like, Peter's like a kind of spiritual person, and Jove was a temperamental gun nut. And this reminded Peter of his stepfather because Peter had grown up with his childhood uh, by being constantly belittled by his stepfather. All he ever really wanted was approval from his father. And in David Jove, he could kind of achieve some of this. So yeah, he's being his mouthpiece, but he also doesn't want to upset him. Within months of premiering on public television, the show was picked up by the Night Flight program, still going today. And it was meant it, meant it was now going to be shown on network television and the dollar signs start flashing in David Jove's eyes. It's it, 
we've hit the big time, people. Yeah, you know, only a few months after New Wave Theater, you know, premiered in January 1981, I mean, it was picked up by USA, the cable network, which is pretty huge. And that's like a national television network. But during this time, though, Ivers was also like kind of on a roll. He wrote two musicals, Nirvana, Nirvana Cuba and the Vitamin Pink Fantasy Review, uh, which, the, which was actually co-produced by Harold Ramis, one of the Ghostbusters. I love it. Yeah. Oh, and, I love uh, him. Yeah, they did two, uh, I would have loved to have gone to this, two sold-out performances at the uh, Hollywood's Club Lingerie in 82. Can you imagine how cool that would have been? Um, uh, if I could time travel back, I would time travel to 80s Los Angeles when the music was so fucking good. Not late 80s. I would say early 80s. Early 80s, but yeah. And Although it would, be cool. it would be cool to spend one night at the Rainbow, like one Friday night at the Rainbow in like 1987. Just yeah, with all the hair metal, pretty... the hair metalers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder what would happen if you time traveled back to '87, got herpes, and then went back. Like, would you still have it? You'd have that 1980s herpes, which probably is imper- impervious to modern day antibiotics. Yeah, you could probably—that's probably how the COVID happened. And yeah, maybe, maybe it probably came from the rainbow. Um. During this time, too, uh, Ivers met a songwriter named uh, Franny Gold, and they began writing, they had a partnership, and they were writing pop songs for other famous artists. June Pointer of the Pointer Sisters uh, did one of their songs called Little Boy Sweet, um, which was in uh, National Lampoon's Vacation, you know, with Chevy Chase. And then uh, Marty Balin of uh, Jefferson Starship recorded All We Really Need, and Diana Ross recorded uh, one of their songs called Let's Go Up that was a huge hit and the uh, pop and R&B charts. So he was definitely making money at this point. Well, yeah, those PRS checks are coming in for oh, this. Oh, for sure. On March the 2nd, 1982, Peter Ivers sold a screenplay called City of Tomorrow to Warner Brothers. He also scored a songwriting contract with ATV Music Publishers, meaning that after now years of basically living from paycheck to paycheck, he finally has a big cash, cash injection coming his way. He went to tell David Jove that he was leaving the New Wave Theatre. Five hours after telling him the news, he would be dead. Mm-hmm. I'm sure David Jove wasn't too happy that his cash cow was about to take off. Well, we're going to talk about David Jove. The story goes that about 2.30pm on March the 3rd, a neighbour was alerted by Anne Ramis, she's the wife of Harold Ramis, to go and check on Peter after he hadn't been returning her calls. Peter never locked the door to his sixth floor loft, so the neighbor just walked in and he came upon the grisly murder scene. That's amazing that you'd live in LA Skid Row and not lock your fucking front door. I know, Peter, you've got a genius level IQ. You can't lock your door. What do you think? He he was lying fully clothed in his bloodstained bed. His head was now just a bloody pancake. There was a wooden brain-covered hammer found nearby. Hank Petrowski is just such an American like cop name. <laughs> Hank Petrowski on the on the beat. He's one of the detectives on the case. He confirmed the gruesome crime scene, saying he's laying in bed and there was one of those like kind of circus hammers, like a mallet, and there was blood on it and his head smashed in. His cause of death was confirmed as enormous skull fractures and brain injury. Peter was only thirty six years old. Was this one of those wooden hammers that you used to tenderize beef? That's what it sounds like. No, it's like it's like one of those mallets that you use for like um to me like you would put a, a like a tent 
uh, pegs in. Like oh, a, a, okay, one of those like, heavy. All right, all right. Like the Joker used. Like one of those. Yeah, kind it's of, got the uh, wooden uh, handle. Okay. All right. I mean, that would fucking hurt. Yeah, no, they're heavy. No, you would definitely like bash in someone's head with that thing. As is typical for the LAPD, an investigation was bungled from the start. Word had spread fast about his uh, death, and Lucy Fisher, she made her way to the loft. She said that by the time she got there, people were already milling around. Nothing had been cordoned off. Yeah, I read that according to Fisher, the crime scene was so polluted by the time that she got there that it was very difficult. She recalls her best friend at the time, uh, the late Elizabeth Glazier. She arrived at the loft with her then-husband, actor Paul Michael Glazier, who you might know yeah. as Starsky from the crime drama Starsky and Hutch. So oh, Fisher said that uh, a particular exchange between the LAPD and uh, the erstwhile Starsky gave her a pause. The police looked at him. These are like real LAPD police, you know, that, that are in uniforms and detectives. And they're like, so what do you think we should do? And Starsky looks at him and is like, I'm an actor. Like, why are you asking me? <laughs> Let's all go to the craft services. I don't fucking know. Like, go get Columbo. I don't know. Like, like, seriously, the guy's an actor. He's not a real cop. Speaking of Columbo, this is always one of my favorite questions when people mention Columbo. So, did they hire Peter Falk because Columbo had a glass eye? Or did Columbo have a glass eye because Peter Falk had a glass eye? I don't That's know what I'm going to get chiseled on my gravestone, I think. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, I wonder, I did I've... Peter Falk have a glass eye? Like, it, was he casted for like was he cast for that role because he had the glass eye? Had a glass eye because Columbo had a glass eye? Or did Columbo have a glass eye because Peter Falk had a glass eye? It's a chicken and egg scenario here. I'm going to chisel this on my gravestone. Hank Petrowski even admitted that the situation is not ideal, right? He's blaming the patrolman on duty for not securing the scene. Uh, he remembered that the hammer had no fingerprints on it, but there was one clue about the crime scene. Peter's stereo equipment had gone missing. But this could have been to a thing to fake us out, said Petrowski. I've already killed him for this, but now I'm going to steal his stereo equipment and they'll think it's just some burglar. In the following week, Petrowski questioned as many of Peter's friends as he could, and there were many, but he's unable to come up with a credible suspect. And theories started running rampant. The new wavers blamed the Hollywood hotshots, who in turn blamed the punks. Even Harold Ramis was what? under suspicion due to the fact that it was his wife who raised the alarm. Uh, Lee Ving from Fear, he's even questioned, but he's dismissed. I could see Lee Ving being a suspect. I mean, look at that guy, especially at that time. But Harold Ramis, the nerd Ghostbuster, he's... come on. I know, bless him. Peter's diary, and again, Peter is one of the few men who I will allow to have a diary, from the time mentioned that he had shady deals with shady people in San Francisco and that he was scared of them. Maggie Abbott suggests in her book that Peter was murdered by people who were looking for David Jove. Josh Frank, who wrote a biography on Peter, speculates that Peter was reluctantly carrying out drug deals on behalf of David Jove. And speaking of David Jove, we're all thinking it, that he killed Peter because Peter was his alter ego and Peter was about to leave him. He was making so much money off of Peter. I mean, Peter must have been bringing so much money to New Wave Theatre. And uh, yeah, and well, he's his mouthpiece. Figurehead. So yeah, like you're, I mean, pretty much that's like, okay, now, you know, 
my my entire nightlife, my business venture, everything is gone because this guy's leaving me in the dust. I'm sure he was. I'm sure there was there was some bitterness. Well, many saw David Jove as downright dangerous. Members of Devo said that they were afraid of him. But I mean, come on, members of Devo just cute Ohio boys. <laughs> like, they, they had a gut feeling, you know, that he was a hey! bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> they said that David Jove was a loose cannon. David Jove was addicted to cocaine, and Peter had soon kind of grown sick of this scene. And David is not only known to be violent himself, but he was connected to plenty of other people who were violent too. But law enforcement could never get any theory to stick. Hearsay doesn't hold up in a court of law, and the court of public opinion may find you guilty, but it doesn't mean anything inside of a courtroom. Having said that, David Jove certainly had the means, he had the motive, and he probably had the opportunity to kill Peter. He also had the drugs. You know, I'm sure he was all hopped up on 80s cocaine. Oh, the good stuff. I would go back to the 80s and I would have some quaaludes left over from the 70s oh, yeah. and I would have quaaludes and I would have cocaine and I just would not leave my room at the Tropicana for a couple of days. That's what I would do. Jello Biafra, who is a good friend of Peter's, also suspected that David Jove was the killer and he made mention of this in his memorial speech at Peter's funeral. You know, I read that Durf Scratch from the Van Fier, and there were a few other people in the in the scene, maintained Joe's innocence. So I, it was definitely split. Yeah, I wouldn't say everybody unanimously. Yeah, I think it was polarizing. Yeah, I don't think everybody unanimously thought that David Jove was the murderer. And obviously, because this is still an open case, it's not like you they can open up the case files either. So we'll never actually know what David jo Jove has said or his alibi for that night or his witnesses unless the LAPD closed the case and then in which case we can put in a Freedom of Information Act and we can see. Mm -hmm. But at the time Lucy hired a private detective to investigate and for around a year before she decided that it was just simply too painful and she wanted to move on. Even now 43 years later the case has gone cold very cold, super cold. And Lucy has accepted that closure might never come. Although, as James Elroy says, closure is bullshit. When asked if she thinks someone he knew killed Peter, she said she spent many years pondering that question. I do think it's possible that it was somebody crazy that he knew. But I think it's also possible that it was a passerby who heard music coming out of there and knew. Equipment was stolen. The door wasn't locked. Peter could do everything except lock a door. Well, that's true. I mean, he was living in a very sketchy area of Los Angeles. His stereo was stones, probably a few hundred dollars. I'm sure he had other valuables there, too. So I think it's within reason that, you know, someone walked in off the street and, you know, and, just, and robbed him. Peter Ivers tried to fight back and he like bludgeoned him to death with like the only thing he could find on, the, on hand, a mallet. However, at the same time, Peter hung out with a lot of sketchy people. People. So, yeah. You know. And to go from stealing something to quickly murdering to me is uh, like that doesn't like sit well. So David Jove died in 2004. In 2006, the case was reviewed again when writer Josh Frank was re researching for his biography on Peter. He contacted Cliff Shepard, the cop who was working the LAPD's cold case unit. He reported that the detectives at the time had discovered that there was a rooftop burglar operating in the area. 
Three weeks after Ivor's murder, the burglar was found dead in an alley, having fallen from a roof during a robbery. Hmm. The detectives kind of put two and two together and they fingered him as the most likely suspect. Cliff said, I know there are a lot of people that think there's other people involved, but it just doesn't appear that way. You would like to have better answers, but I don't think there ever will be. I think this is it. I mean, that sounds plausible to me because just in that area, I'm sure there are a lot of robberies. And that's the thing. I mean, maybe he was in the house. The guy came in to rob him. He fought back and then the guy murdered him. I mean, it's makes sense. Yeah, it's not outside the realm. Like Elizabeth Short, Peter Ivers' case has long since gone cold. And if he were alive today, he would be 77 years old. And in some ways, he's actually now more popular than he ever was in life. Lucy keeps his memory alive. Her dog is named Ivers, and she established an archive for him at Harvard and a scholarship called the Peter Ivers Visiting Artist Program. Several compilations have been released over the years showing the thought process and his kind of keen intellect and like natural talent of an oddball creating. Lucy said for Peter to have his music heard more wildly, wildly, which is what he wanted so badly, is a beautiful thing. He could win fans one at a time. He just didn't have enough time. The Guardian has labelled him an Einstein among Neanderthals and the tragic prince of LA counterculture. But I don't think Peter's life is very tragic. What's tragic is that he's been murdered very brutally, his brain's bashed in, and no one's ever received justice for their deeds. On the day that he died, Peter had bought a copy of his favourite book as a gift for his friend, uh, Peter Rafelson, the world's most boring book, June, by Frank Herbert. David Lynch is just about to start shooting this movie in a few weeks. Inside the front cover, he left some last words to his friend. Every decision you make is a chance to be a hero. It's very true. Um, I wonder what movie David Lynch was filming at that point. June. Oh, he was, June. Oh, he was about, about to film, dude. Yes. Oh, okay, right after. Oh, okay, right. So that was all around the same time. You know, so Josh Frank, who uh, ended up doing uh, the book, wrote a book about him, he explained, and I think he sums it up perfectly, about why Peter Ivers was so important to that Hollywood scene at that time, like in the you know late 70s, early 80s. He was the centerpiece of the wheel that our pop culture history turned around in the 70s and 80s. Even though his output didn't necessarily stick, I mean, I don't think anyone would know a single song off the album Terminal Love. In one way or another, he helped many of the artists of his time get their success. David Lynch. I mean, he was a connector. He connected people. So think about how many people met each other at their uh, Laurel Canyon apartment. How many, like, how you know many people he... he introduced Mark Mothersbaugh to? Yeah, he kind of reminds me of like Lucian Carr and the Beats. Like the Beats would yeah. never have happened without Lucian Carr. You need somebody there who's going to... The cool, the coolest person in the room is often the person that no one knows about. And I totally agree with this too. He was ahead of the curve when it came to video, art, mixing, and video and music. Right. So I mean, he was well. He was a visionary, definitely an innovator. Um, but check out check out the book. It's I'm I'm definitely I've actually never read it, but uh, after doing some research, I read a lot of excerpts from it. But Josh Frank wrote a book along with Charlie Buckholz called "In Heaven Everything Is Fine." The Unsolved Life of Peter Ivers and the Lost History of the New Wave Theater. You know, they should almost make a documentary about it. Um, I think they I think focus the a lot on the murder, have, though. Haven't they? Or have they done that? I'm sure there's a night flight documentary about the New Wave Theater. I mean, I'm, I don't, you've got to pay to have night flight, uh, so I don't have it, but I'm pretty sure they have. 
but so much of the new wave fear is on YouTube. Like, yeah, you I've can it all this week. Yeah, you can you can watch. I know today I was watching like uh, a few different episodes. I mean, it's great too. The 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 performances and the bands they have on it's all my favorite music. You know what's interesting is um, in my old neighborhood where I used to live and where Harrison lived, uh, right over in Hollywood, kind of Thai town area. There's a uh, it's called there's a there's a storefront that used to be called Sacred Farts. And it's owned by the lead singer of uh, Green Jello. I mean, people might remember uh, that band. You know, they did uh, James Maynard Keenan. No, he wasn't the lead singer. Oh no, sorry, I'm thinking because they did a song called Green Jelly. <laughs> yeah, uh, gr well, Green Jello, Green Jello was the band. Then Jello sued them. They changed it to Green Jelly. But uh, yeah, I don't, yeah. If, I don't know if James Keen Maynard Keenan was in the band, but there were members of Tool in that band at one point. But they were kind of like That's this. You know, they definitely uh, used a lot of elements of uh, like claymation in their videos. So it was, you know, a lot of their their stuff not only was like audio, but they used to use like audio visual type of uh, interactive uh, entertainment. That's what the, that's what they're going for. Um, so anyway, that guy started his own currently started his own theater now. So the Green Jello guy, and it's just a bunch of like Burning Man rejects, and they're all hanging out, and they have their own TV studio, and I think he's trying to resurrect the new wave theater. But now it's this kind of like this really weird, you know, ultra type of uh, thing that he's got going on. And it's like a whole community and they all get together. Me and me and Jojo were walking by and we're like, what is this? And we went in there and it was just a bunch of weird, smelly dreadlock dudes that looked like they stepped out of 1996. Right. And they're playing experimental jazz. Yeah. I mean, go check it out. No, they have like a, they, they filmed their own like live vidcast and they had different bands come in and perform and you can go there and they're comedians and, you know, spoken word artists and poets. And I think they're trying to do something similar to this. It's right across the street from right, right down the street from Jumbo's across from uh, Harvard Stone. love Jumbo's. But anyway, people go check out Peter Ivers. I want to, the album I want is uh, Terminal Love, but the, the album that he, the self-titled record, he, I think they put out right after in 1976, I would say is a, a bit more commercially viable. It's, it's, it's more pop, kind of like 70s pop, like new wave pop. Whereas uh, Terminal, Terminal Love, we're going to end, uh, we're going to end the show with a song off of it, is weird. Very avant-garde, just strange new wave. I'd say the second album is a little bit more uh, accessible and listenable. Uh, but definitely go check out Peter Ivers. Fascinating man with a fascinating life. Uh, people, this is episode uh, 872 here, Sick and Wrong. We got some phone calls coming up next. You can call the hotline yourself if you'd like. 323-522-4032. Uh, or you can email us at uh, sickandwrongpodcast at uh, gmail.com. But first, here's a brief holiday message from Adam and Eve. Ah, the holidays. It's snowing outside, the fire is crackling, and there's a big jar of unused lube on your nightstand. And that can only mean one thing. It's December. Yes, that time of year that we celebrate Christ's alleged birth with the purchase of a shiny brand new dildo at AdamEve.com. And if you use coupon code DIDDLE on your order, you'll get 50% off your first purchase, three free adult DVDs, and a free gift. Show your loved ones you still care and cram a brand new dildo down their holiday road. Support Sick and Wrong by supporting our sponsor, AdamandEve.com, and making a purchase using coupon code DIDDLE. That's D-I-D-D-L-E, like priests do to altar boys. Hallelujah. So we've got a couple of phone calls to get through here. 323-522-4032 is that number. Uh, the first call is from a guy 
using a voice modulator. Uh, this guy might be Kanye West. I'm not sure. Yo, what up, Sanchez? It's your boy, Rome. Listen. He just called me Sanchez. Dirty Sanchez, yeah. To me, it doesn't sound like he's using a voice modulator. It just sounds like a really gruff man. I think he's using some kind of, it sounds to me like he's using one of those modulators. Like, you know, like it sounds like a drive through at Taco Bell. Or maybe, you know what? Maybe he's got uh, one of those, what are those things when you have throat cancer? A voice box? Oh, like on South Park. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's got one of those. But that's that's interesting that he called me Sanchez. I wonder if he used to listen to Rampage Radio back in the day. That was really funny when we were at Merciful Fate and just from across the arena, somebody oh, goes, yeah. yo, Sanchez. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Sanchez. I haven't seen that guy in like 22 years. And that guy's like, Dirty Sanchez. And I looked different back then. I had like long dreads. You know, it's like, it's you weird. That, don't, well, you don't I mean, look different enough. No, and this, some like, some like heavy metal Hessian guy was just like, Sanchez. He was a cool dude, though. Like, I used to be in a, yeah. a John used to be a lead singer of a, a great Merciful Fate cover band called, um, God, I'm trying to think, uh, Hail Satan. They were so good. I used to see them all the time in San Francisco. Anyway. About the whole thing with the Mariah CD. I'm over it. That bitch was fucking crazy. Is he talking about Mariah? I'm struggling to understand him. You might have to. Uh, he is like, definitely using a voicing. It's like Glasgow Greg. Might, he said, yeah, I'm, over, I'm over the whole Mariah CD. That bitch was fucking crazy. I'm not is sure. Mariah... Has Mariah released a new CD and I don't know about this? I'm, I'm unsure about that. Anyway, I hear you be having car trouble and need a new ride. What you need is a motherfucking box. And it just so happens that the Grimace Mobile be up for sale. 500 bucks, that sweet ride could be yours. The Grimace Mobile. I'm assuming he means Grimace from McDonald's. Grimace would be a pretty cool name for your new car, but the only words I made out were 500 bucks and motherfucker. He said, I heard you need a new car. So the box might be available. I'm not sure what the box is. I thought at first he meant a Boxster Porsche, but I think this must be just some kind of hoopty. And it's purple, I'm assuming, because it's he's calling it the Grimace. But I do like the idea of Grimace for a vanity plate. I do, but I have always wondered what Grimace is and what does he want? You know, because after they stopped him burgling all the burgers, he has no purpose in life, but yet he's still here. Who well, is the Grimace and what does he want? Did they did they have all the McDonald's Land characters in uh, in England? Name some other McDonald's characters other than Grimace. I am unaware of them. Mayor McCheese? Hamburglar? Oh, yeah, Mayor McCheese. Oh, he's the Hamburglar, but the Grimace used to steal hamburgers, too. Did they all just steal hamburgers? I don't, I'm not quite sure if Grimace... I think Grimace was evil, but then he became benign. But Hamburglar definitely was a... Uh, what about the uh, the fry guys? Those little fry dudes? Fucking Mayor McCheese. Mayor McCheese, the uh, early bird. 
Ronald McDonald. We used to have all those characters. But I remember it, it, people who have read my book, you might recall there's a scene where I kind of got into an argument. This is actually a true story. I got in an argument with these two somewhat ghetto dudes about McDonald's. And uh, the guy, because we were talking about like McDonald's characters. I don't quite remember. I'd have to read the book again. <laughs> no, actually, I do remember. It was about a, this. This Maybe that's what this guy's referencing. That's what this guy's referencing. Okay. He must have read the book. I worked with a stripper and her Mariah Carey CD, Rainbow, got stuck in the shitty fucking compact disc player that that infernal club used. And I she I accused so me of stealing her fucking CD. And I remember being like, I wouldn't, first of all, I don't like Mariah Carey. Second of all, I wouldn't steal your CD. It's stuck in the machine and she was so pissed about it. And she got her boyfriend and her friend to intimidate me. And what they did, we ended up having Mariah Carey CD. Yeah, we ended up having to, they drove me. I was like, you know, I was so annoyed with the whole thing. I was like, I'll buy her a new fucking CD. And they drove me to Tower Records. It's a true story to go get a, a CD. And I think one of the guys worked at McDonald's and we just started talking about the McDonald's characters and we got an argument about Grimace in particular. And the guy, the guy the, in the passenger seat was like, Grimace was an anthropomorphized taste bud. Oh, I can kind of see that. That's what he is. Right? He's an anthropomorphized taste bud. And he's there because everything is just so fucking delicious. Yes. That, but but why, is, why is he a clown? Why is Ronald McDonald a clown? Nobody's know, answering that. I get because like a clown is a real thing, right? Man cheese is not real. Grimace is not real. The Hamburglar not real. But yet the clown is real. Well, That's the weirdest thing to me. That makes sense to me. Clowns are popular at the time. You have Bozo the clown. You have a lot of different clowns. I'm sure McDonald's was kind of getting in on that trend. But yeah, the other characters are just like bizarre McDonald's characters. That's really funny. But this guy. That. But you. But um. You, I don't know if you've read the story or not. I recommend checking out the book. But in the end, I bought her the CD. They drove me back to, uh, I think it was to, I think I had them drop me off actually at my apartment building. And then uh, they gave gave her the CD. And then like maybe two weeks later, that old CD player uh, broke down and they had to replace it with a new one. And as they were moving it, guess what fell out of it? Looking Rainbow. Was the song that she was making you, uh, the best song on Rainbow is obviously Heartbreaker. What's iconic about the Heartbreaker video is she's wearing those real low, right? Remember when they tore the waistband off jeans, like in fashion in the early 2000s? There was no waistband on jeans. So she's wearing no waistband jeans, but she's also wearing a crop top. Only Mariah can do that. Only Mariah. She's a lot hotter back then, that's for sure. Um, oh yeah! I can't remember what song she played. I do know "Heartbreaker" was the first song, and then the second one was a little bit of a slower jam, sexier. <laughs> this is a song you show your titties. Anyway, um, thank you there, Rome, for calling in, and we'll jog down memory lane. All right, second call here is from the Swede. Nice. Mr. T, Mrs. Kate, this is a Swede. I know there's been some questions into my past, but I think that leaving these questions unanswered adds to the mysticism of it all. 
an air <laughs> of mystery about this man. Why not forget all of that and get back to the butt plugs, hookers, and broken noses instead, I ask you. I was competing in the World Championships in Karate for Team Sweden, and I found in this forum both honor and love. Sweden and Spain was training in the same arena prior to the event, and there I found a young lass called Estrella. We, we quickly found a repertoire, despite the fact that she spoke no English and I know Spanish. The only <laughs> I forgot that he didn't he say in a in a prior call that he was in the Olympics, right? For karate. Yeah, was it for for fucking karate? Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, this guy must be a badass. You know, Elvis was a black belt. Yeah, he was. Was he a black belt in karate or is it like Jeet Kune Do or something? Or Taekwondo? Oh, no. Uh, no, just karate. It was karate. But like... right. I always forget about that. Te encuentro muy hermosa, which is... So Wait, let me rewind this. He's speaking some sp he's speaking Spanish, but in a Swedish accent. Oh my god, he speaks Spanish like how I speak Spanish. <laughs> Sorry, Sri. Speak more Spanish than I do. The only line that I had was basically Te encuentro muy hermosa, which is some I know what this means cuz I can't speak Spanish. He's saying Te encuentro o Te encuentra muy hermosa. I find you very beautiful. This is like the Peggy Hill hour, the Peggy Hill substitute Spanish teacher hour. It is just really weird that he would go up to this random girl and just say that. I guess he had already kind of like established some kind Broken of rapport with her. Yeah, but I mean, it's just weird that, you know, that he would just go up to a chick and say that. I remember when, uh, God, when I, was, I was probably like 22, 21, 22, when the first time I went to uh, Spain, uh, me and my friend Kessler and uh, P-Town, and we were in clubs and the, I mean, Spain, there's so many beautiful women there. I would call it like the land of no fatties. But anyway, we're at a club. and uh, That's not true, but go on. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Madrid. Oh, I was only in Madrid and Barcelona. So maybe the other. Cities. As I say, they do the Italian woman thing. They do the Russian woman thing, which oh. is the hot. Then they get married. They get pooped. Babushka. Oh, Instant okay. Babushka. Maybe that's probably what it is. Anyway, when they're in their 20s, they're beautiful. But they don't speak any English. So it's very difficult to talk to them. And at the time... I didn't speak, I spoke a bit of Spanish, but Kessler spoke no Spanish. He would just go up to him and be like, Donde esta la casa de Pepe? Which means, where's the house of Pepe? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or he'd be like, Buongiorno. Donde esta la servietta? Where is the napkin? <laughs> they were like, the look of confusion on these beautiful women's faces was priceless. Anyway, I want to I want to know what this girl said when this like Swedish guy is like te encuentro muy yeah. hermoso. Can I just say that the difference between you Kessler and P-Town in Spain to Swede who is a trained athlete at the Olympics oh, yeah. is vast. <laughs> oh, right? Believe me, with my dreads and tattoos, I definitely think I was uh, a you know, I think I scared I, I think I scared the hot girls. Although I did score. Yeah. I did score. At least once. Equivalent to I found you very beautiful. I never thought that would I, that would work, but to my delight and surprise, in thirty minutes we were having sweaty love uh, sweaty love making sessions. Damn. Locker room. I wish my luck would have been the same on the tatami, the mat, 
However, that was not the case. In my committee round, fighting that is. Yeah, don't they say? I thought the uh, the Olymp the Olympiad or the Olympians are uh, very superstitious. They don't have sex for like two weeks before they uh, compete. I don't know if it's like all Olympians, but like, yeah, I would totally have raging bulled it and been like, I need, especially for something like karate, I'd be like, I need to be at full testosterone, full anger, so that I can beat this person, or I'll flip the board. Maybe they have to be in Zen state, and the only way you can do that is uh, by getting your swerve on. <laughs> third, after being kicked by the kicked in the balls by a Japanese fighter, would go on to finish first. My fighting weight was 55 kilograms at the moment, and that would equate to fly weight by American standards. So today I would eat that Jap as sushi for breakfast. <laughs> We're coming up. <laughs> Swede. <laughs> I wonder if he has any videos of his old fights. He must have, you know, he probably got into some fights at bars. I think the Swede has been known to be punchy in his time, yeah. But I wonder if, like, if he had to warn them, like, these hands are lethal weapons. You know, or... And that's exactly how he said it, yeah. <laughs> but I thought that's what you do when you're, like, a karate guy is you can't just get into a normal fight because if you do and kick someone's ass, they could sue you because your hands are lethal weapons. I could actually see this being a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie where he's like, you know, he's training for the Olympics and then he gets to the Olympics and a sneaky little Asian man kicks him in the balls, but the ref doesn't see. So then he vows to return and he'll be bigger and more jacked up and beefier than he's ever been before just to get this sneaky little Asian man. Do you, are you implying that the Swede was in a, an illegal martial arts tournament called the Kumite? I am implying that, yeah. And he should uh, reapply and go for it. Go for the karate guy. I wonder karate if he knows guy. the uh, Jew claw technique. I'm no, really that's that. just particular to you. <laughs> you could also um, apply for those clubs if you have a machete with your... Um, Oh, my your nunchucks. Skills, your nunchucks. Yeah. Ooh, probably. Don't know why I actually, said machete then. With your probably could. Can you have a skill? Can you have skills of a machete? You just kind of hack, don't you? I like you I just can use a machete. Haven't you always wanted to just be in a jungle with a machete, just just hacking away, and there's like a group of people behind you, and you're all sweaty, and you're like, "I'll get us to safety, folks. Don't worry." Haven't you ever dreamt about that? I have. No, I I, I can't say that I have. <laughs> Although I guess I I've used it. I have used a machete walking around in like the in the woods before. I used to have this really cool one, and I found that like a garage sale. Loved it. Never had. Oh, I thought you were going to say as a boy in South Africa. No, I did at a garage sale in South Africa. I used to use it all the time in the backyard. <laughs> but you know, that was one thing about the rabbi. Well, the rabbi was always kind of like very busy with the synagogue, so he never really took much of. I don't know. I wouldn't say not, not much interest in my growing up but i think he's just busy so he didn't have time and my mom didn't seem to care about buying me weapons so i had like nunchucks i had one of those bow staffs i had psi which is you know what Raphael, the teenage mutant ninja turtle used oh, i had three yeah, he's my favorite i had three katanas i had um and then i made all these i was super into that shit ninja weapons i had like a machete and, and throwing knives that was my big thing Ninja stars and throwing knives. And my mom would just buy all that stuff for me. So <laughs> she's like, I don't think she even thought about it. 
But I was like, I don't know. You won't like probably, use them on the family. It's yeah, fine. I was probably like 10. No, I don't think she, you know what she bought me too one time? She bought me those claws that you can use to climb trees. But I was kind of a fat ass. <laughs> so I just fucked up my hands really bad. Like cut, cut up my hands trying to use them. I don't think they actually work. As a, yeah, so I say, did you actually make it to the top of a tree? That's kind of terrifying though. That's a, that's a good mother to just buy you all these weapons and not, not give two fucks about it. Like, I, I just care if he hurts or saw himself. It's I fine. don't think Get it was... The katana. I don't think it said she didn't, you know, she was indifferent to my livelihood. I just don't think she thought, I think she just thought they were like toys. Like that's what kids play with. You know, ninjas start like lethal weapons. And I was so, so into ninjas that I just thought it was cool. So I had like a, if you went into my bedroom in the closet, I had all the ninjas up, like all the ninja weapons up on the wall, but in like a secret, like you had to move the clothing and you'd see them all like hanging up on the wall. You are such a child of that era. I would like to remind 80s. people that there is a video of D showing off his nunchuck skills on the Patreon because you're fucking good. I was pretty good at that point. Yeah. Anyway, uh, good to hear from you, Swede. And yeah, we want to hear about yeah. some bar fights where you kick some ass like Van Damme style. Um, people call Sick Around Hotline, 323-522-4032. We do need more phone calls. We're trying to build up a backlog. And uh, also in two weeks... Uh, Wackily and Steel will be on for the holiday show. So uh, we definitely want to get some phone calls for them. So if you have any burning questions for Lance Wackily or anything you want to get uh, some opinions from Steel, call us, 323-522-4032, or email the show, sickrunpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, big ups to everybody who supports us on Patreon. You do keep the show going. It's because of you that I'm doing this every week. Uh, so we appreciate you helping us keep it sick and wrong. Patreon.com slash sick and wrong. Also, T Public Store. I'm actually working on a new Kanye t-shirt um, right now as we speak that no one's going to buy. But I'm going to post it on the... Uh, I'm trying, trying to get it up on the T Public Store before Hanukkah. Anyway, sickandwrongpodcast.com slash shop. Click on the picture of the Pope and buy yourself uh, some sick and wrong merch. Finally, here's Sick and Wrong Song of the Week. As I mentioned before, we're going to end the show with the Peter Ivers song off his uh, second studio album called Terminal Love. Um, this was released in 1974. The song's called Sweet Enemy, and I think it's probably one of the catchier songs on the record. Because a lot of that record is It's got Velvet just, Underground vibes. Yeah, like a Velvet Underground kind yeah. of, uh, kind of uh, cadence to it. Uh, but this this record is very hard to find. It became a cult classic. So to find an original copy, you're looking at probably at least 70 quid. And I can't even find any in the U.S. I can I see know. him definitely being more a hit over here at the time than over in America. Because, like, um, God, even Blondie wasn't appreciated in America. It was appreciated here first. I still think this is one of those records. I'm just going to go into a random record store, Goodwill or something, and you're going to flip through and be right. like, Peter Ivor, because no one knows who he is. And we're going to be like, oh, shit, Terminal Love, been looking for this forever. Anyway, we're yeah, on the show like here. Sweet, yeah, Sweet Anime, Peter Ivers. People, we'll be back next week with episode 873. Till then, take it sleazy.
Hitler, you're not a Nazi. You don't deserve to be called that and demonized. Well, I I see I I see good things about Hitler also. The Jew I love everyone, and Jewish people are not gonna tell me you can love um you know us and you can love what we're doing to you with the contracts, and you can love what we're you know what we're pushing with the pornography. But this guy that invented highways, invented the very microphone that I use as a musician. You can't say out loud that this person ever did anything good, and I'm done with that. I'm done with the classifications. Every human being has something of value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler.